Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Are you ready to talk about some registered accounts and ever take advantage of everything the Canadian government offers? Absolutely. And I think, you know, by the time this episode airs, we might be in an election season. So it's mm. definitely something something to think about when we, you know, are moving into that what different governments are going to be offering people from a benefits perspective. Yeah, yeah, we'll see what the uh, contribution room is for the TFSA in 2020. That'll be super interesting. I wanted to go through what are some common questions and mistakes about the different programs that Canada has to offer. So let's start with the TFSA. When the TFSA came out in 2009, how much did you know about it? We were babies back then. I don't think I was a baby. (laughs) (laughs) I was a baby. Um, I... Honestly, did not know a lot about it, and I feel like not a lot of people knew a lot about it, and I think everyone kind of just treated it as this, like, potential place where you could get a higher interest rate on your savings. That's, to me, kind of how it was marketed anyways. Yeah, and I think, especially when it was first released, nobody really understood, like, I can put money into it and take money out of it and then put money into it again and use it like a regular savings account, and then there was over-contributions and... Yeah, I, I actually ended up getting dinged. It was like $100 that I ended up getting fined like two or three years into it because I just had no clue. I thought as soon as you took it out, you kind of like re-got that contribution room. Mm-hmm. So definitely next year. a very big misconception in the world. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the contribution room doesn't really matter unless you're close to the maximum. Um But, you know, if you take money out of it, just wait until January to put it back in and then you'll be fine. And I mean, it's been going on for so long now that, you know, people who probably have enough to max it out are kind of maybe older, I guess. The youngest you could be actually is 28 and it's what, $63,000 or something like that? 63500 this year. So that's a decent chunk of change for people to be putting in if, if it's like their first time opening that account. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's start with like what the TFSA is. So TFSA is the tax-free saving account, and you could be close to the max because it starts when you're 18. So I guess if you turned 18 in 2019, you'd have 6,000 bucks that you could put into it. And if you put the 6,000 bucks in in September and took out the 6,000 bucks and bought a car and then tried to put 6,000 bucks in in December, you were going to have over-contributed. So they could still make those mistakes. For sure. No, totally. I forgot about that point that it starts when you're 18. That's Mm -hmm. something to remember for sure. And yeah, Mm -hmm. it was $6,000 this year. That's awesome. It's kind of gone up. Yeah. I mean, at one point it was 10,000. The 10,000 was a real, real win year. I can't remember what year that was off the top of my head. 2015. And I think it was under the conservatives right before the election, I think. Does that make sense? Maybe. (laughs) I feel like it was 2015 too. That's what I was going to say. So... Let's go with that and then correct it in the show notes. <laughs> We're wrong. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so in your personal opinion, who do you think should have a TFSA? Every single person, in my opinion, should have a TFSA if you're able to 
save some money. I think it can be a great place for your savings. I know some people like to put their emergency funds in it. I personally am a huge advocate of investing within your TFSA. So in my opinion, as as early as you can get one opened and as much money as you can throw in there and start to invest, the better you're going to be down the road. Yeah, because as long as this program runs, all the earnings, all the returns within your TFSA are completely and totally tax-free. You will not get taxed on any any returns in those accounts. What about somebody who like just moved here and they've got a temporary social insurance number and they're, yeah, they've got a work permit. What do you think? I mean, my tax background tells me that if you're not a resident of the country, you can't utilize the TFSA. But it's been a while since I've dusted off those rules. Yeah, well, the residency rules for TFSA, to me, seem like pretty, pretty lenient. So as long as you've lived in the country, like as long as you're living here, working here, you're here for more than, I think it's 283 days of the year, you can have a TFSA. You might if you go back to, you know, if you don't become a permanent resident, if you don't work here for a few years, you might have to withdraw it. If you're American, they're going to tax you on it. Yeah, that is one thing to note is if you become taxable in the U.S., and we can probably have a whole episode on taxes, but if you Mm -hmm. become a resident in the U.S., the TFSA is treated like a trust. And so all that really means is it's unfavorable tax treatment to you, whereas, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure we'll get into this, but the RSP is not treated like that in the U.S. So if you have dual citizenship um, and you have to file in both countries, definitely maybe the TFSA isn't right for you. Yeah. And I think that's the only situation where I'd say think twice before opening a TFSA. I think if you're American um, with Canadian residency, maybe reconsider it. But I think if you're a a relative newcomer to Canada, as soon as you have your social insurance number, check it out. Talk to an accountant. See if you meet the residency requirements and definitely get that started. Um, And that's a good point. If you are a dual citizen, I get these questions all the time about people moving two different countries and like what's the tax treaty there and it's so hard to know without like knowing everyone's case facts so I would just Mm -hmm. really encourage you if you are looking at anything where you are a dual citizen or have dual residency or whatever please talk to someone who um is like in your jurisdiction and knows those laws Mm -hmm. yeah because we don't know I I mean I know the American case but I don't know if there's another country that if you have citizenship if they'll look at the TFSA unfavorably. I have no idea. Yeah, me neither. Not off the top of my head. But from the Canadian perspective, it seems like the residency requirements are pretty lenient. So if you qualify, take advantage of it. Don't hold back. And students, do you think a student should have a TFSA? 100%. I think it's a great place to start saving for the future. I'm, again, a huge advocate of even while you're in school, if you can sock away $50 a month into something to build that savings habit or build that investing habit, I think Mm -hmm. that you know, that's a really good place to start and a good kind of habit to start building. Yeah, I think so too. Because I mean, even if you're a student and you think, well, even if I get this fund or start investing or have my savings account, there's no way I'm going to get taxed on it, which true, but you have that TFSA contribution room. Why wait until you're employed and then you have RSP to consider and then the TFSA to consider don't wait till it snowballs. Don't wait until you're sitting at 63500 with $0 in your TFSA. 
just start start the healthy habits of saving and save in a tax sheltered account. Why not? And there is something to be said about the time value of money, right? Like mm-hmm. having more years on your side is always beneficial when it comes to saving and investing because that interest and those returns start to compound and then your interest and returns make money and then that money makes money and then you're rich. Yeah. It's just that simple. Well, exactly. <laughs> That's how everyone gets rich. But yeah, and I think it would be kind of a hassle if you did start the savings habits as a student outside of a TFSA to convert to a TFSA, especially if you were investing. I feel like that would be such a hassle. Yeah, you basically have to sell everything. Mm -hmm. I had to, uh, when my husband and I got together many moons ago, he did not have a TFSA and he had a GIC that was maturing or something, had some mutual funds and they were just kind of sitting in unregistered accounts and I was like, no, don't do that. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Mm, Any other mistakes that you can think of off the top of your head? I think like around the TFSA, a big mistake people make in my opinion is they do treat it like a savings account. I really, Mm. I think I've said this in another episode, but I will lobby the government to change the name to the tax-free investment account. And if I was prime minister, that would be the first thing I would change. I feel I would lobby you then to change the account because it's not an account. Yeah. It's a plan. You can have so many accounts. Yeah, we've definitely um, mentioned this in previous episodes, but yeah, you totally can have more than one uh, TFSA account. And I think that's, again, something that people don't necessarily think of. They think they can only have one. Mm -hmm. Just make sure that, you know, you're tracking all of your contributions because sometimes the CRA website either isn't accurate or takes a while to update. But yeah, you could totally have like one with Quest Trade and one with uh, your financial institution and maybe one with a robo-advisor if you wanted. Like you could have as many as you wanted. And you can have a, a savings account in there. You could have GICs in there. You can have uh, investments of any shape or form. I think the only thing you're not allowed to have in a TFSA is you can't short anything. Yeah, you really have to be careful with day trading. The CRA has gone after people for day trading in their TFSA. Obviously, be careful with that. There are some investments that do not qualify to be in a registered accountant, but usually those are like really random like small shares of things so I think like if you're trading on like the OTC markets in the states or like the pink sheets here in Canada I don't think those qualify but if you're like a new investor you don't need to worry about like all these you know random other investments we're talking about if you're oh sorry I I was just gonna say if you're looking at like a mutual fund or an ETF like you're you're fine put that in your or GSE or Well, and I think those types of rules is to prevent unnecessary risk. And the thing is, if you take too much risk on in your TFSA, you lose your contribution room. So, and there's no way to report those losses and and use them against gains. So if you're going to have a risk, I mean, do that in a non-registered account. Absolutely. And that's actually something that I didn't know for the longest time is that there is no way to claim those gains. I mean, it makes sense. But so if you contribute $1,000, you lose 500 and you pull out 500 and you have $0 in your TFSA, you don't have $1,000 of contribution room. You only have 500. So you only get the contribution room back that you've pulled out of the account. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's something that kind of confused me for a little while. So something worth noting for sure. And I mean, it's from my experience, that's kind of what I've done is any of my like heavier risk investments where I, or my play money or my fun money always goes in my unregistered account just so that if for some reason there is a loss and yeah, I've had losses over the years. Um, I'm able to actually claim those against gains. Mm-hmm. You definitely want to do that. Cool. Let's move on to RSPs. Who should have an RSP? 
in your opinion? Well, that's a tricky one. Because you can open an RSP the minute you start earning income. So technically, mm-hmm. you could have an RSP before you're 18, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. In my ideal world, every 14-year-old that gets a job opens an RSP and maxes it out. And then when they turn 18, they start to max out their TFSAs and everyone is financially literate and rich. That being said, that's not always the case. And people don't always have like that much disposable income. I think once you get a job, it might make sense again to open one and find somewhere that's, you know, super low cost, especially when you're starting out and even putting $25 in again every month just to build that habit. Saving a piece of your paycheck for the for retirement or for the future is is valuable. But once you start to get out of that first tax bracket, um, I think it makes a lot more sense to have an RSP. Yeah, I, I think so too. I don't know if it's in my opinion, I don't know if it's necessary to contribute right off the hop, like as soon as you have employable earnings to contribute to an RSP. There's so much that goes into it. Like, do you have a suitable pension? Do you need the tax deduction? Does your spouse need the tax deduction more? Well, and one thing to note on that, you don't actually have to claim the tax deduction in the year that you contribute. Mm -hmm. So like I said, in my ideal world, everyone puts 18% of their earnings, provided they don't have a pension plan, into their RSP every year and you wait until you're in a higher tax bracket to claim those and then you get a big ass refund Mm -hmm. as opposed to like if you're a student and you're contributing to your RSP that's great build that savings habit but don't claim the deduction until you're at least in the second tax bracket making like 50k a year yeah yeah I usually use like 50,000 as a rule of thumb yeah I would say 50 to 70 depending on your province and Mm -hmm. your income overall yeah and everything else. So what do you think the biggest mistakes with RSP contributions and maybe withdrawals are? I think with the contributions, people claiming the deduction on their tax return too early. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at the different tax brackets, because when you break it down, you're actually get, so if you contribute a thousand dollars and you're in the tax bracket of 32%, and I don't even know if that's a tax bracket off the top of my head, you get back $320. But if you wait, a year and you are in the 47% tax bracket the next year, well, then you're going to get $470 back. And that's a huge difference just from waiting one year. So I think planning out incomes and when you want to take the deductions, and I guess it's less of an issue when you're not contributing that much, but you know, as people move into their 30s and have kids, Mm -hmm. when you're on maternity leave, if you are still contributing to RSP or your employer is or what have you, that's when you want to be like pausing those contributions for sure. I think that's a big, can be a big, a pitfall for people. Yeah. And I was going to bring up the maternity leave slash like one person spending time at home because that's when you're going to have a huge income disparity, disparity, um, in your marriage or, you know, cohabitation, whatever. whatever partnership. And in Alberta here, we have huge income disparity just between men and women on average. And we're going to get into that in, in the next episode, actually. So make <laughs> yeah. sure you turn tune in next week. But making use of the spousal RSP, like that, that's a huge one. You can contribute to your spouse's RSP. You set them up. Like if they're staying at home with your kids, they have no pension plan. We know that. They just have CPP. If, um, you know, if they aren't working in an industry where they have a pension, if they're working part-time so they can be the person to pick, uh, you know, the kids up from school or whatever, and you're a high-income earner, 
make use of the spousal RSP. Now, a question for you on that, and I know you're the one supposed to be asking the questions, but to my knowledge and my recollection, you have to still have contribution room to use to utilize the spousal RSP. Oh, true. Yeah, like it because it's your – Yeah. It's against so, – So you get the deduction. You use your room. But, but it goes in your spouse's But name. it goes in your spouse's account. So, if so you're why a is true that beneficial? Because, like, if you're, let's say, you're a high-income government employee. So you're, let's say, you're just making 100000 a year and you're a government employee and you have a great pension and all the rest. And your spouse has part-time work with no pension. Why wouldn't you use your um, RSP room to contribute to their pension plan when you're kind of covered. And so I guess what I was getting at with that is when you said, you know, if you are a true partnership, I guess maybe what I was hoping we would get to is that it becomes beneficial when you look to pull that money out because your spouse is going to be in a lower, the the spouse you're contributing to is going to be in a lower income bracket. Yeah. So when you guys retire, like that's going to be, that's going to be wonderful. It's almost like a way to split income in a sense, if you mm-hmm. think about it from that standpoint. So an example would be like if Tara and I were married or in a common law relationship or whatever, and she was earning all the money and I was staying home with all the kids because we have 10 kids. If she hadn't maxed out her RSP contribution, she could contribute to an RSP plan in my name and take the deduction on her tax return, which is beneficial for both of us and then when we retire and we're old and gray maybe she's getting pension income which is going to kind of be taxed or whatever and I didn't have a pension so I have no income well now I have Mm -hmm. this RSP that I can pull on and so it's a like I said a kind of a great way to in a sense split income in retirement exactly yeah so I just thought I'd give an example of how that all works because it can kind of be confusing to think about it 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 is confusing. I think it's more confusing than it needs to be because once you just start looking at everything as family income, and then I mean, talk to a good accountant too. Just yeah, for sure. Tax have a good professionals, accountant. chef's kiss. Yeah, stole that from the Approachable podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day they'll be on our show. That would be awesome. Okay, mistakes with withdrawing. What do you think common mistakes might be? So with drawing in general is a mistake if uh, it's not under the home buyer's plan or the lifelong learning plan because you're taxed at the full rate if you're not in retirement. So I would say withdrawing in general is a mistake. Yeah. That, that's my answer and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, because you you it's not like the TFSA. You don't get the contribution room back. It's just, it's gone. Um, that should be your last resort. I think you need to, if you're not using it to buy a home or go back to school, you really need to have exhausted all other avenues, all of their funds, unless interest rates are super high or something like that. Yeah, I can't think of a good reason to pull out the RSP unless very specific high income uh, earners prior to going into retirement. Like if it looks like your RIF is going to be taxed higher than what you're taking it out at right now, but that's a that's a super big deal account and you need to talk to an accountant first. For sure. And I think, you know, as big of an advocate as I am for the TFSA, and I always tell people like, don't ever touch your TFSA, never pull money out of it, like use it for your retirement account, make it worth a million dollars and make it a seven figure account. If you are looking at having to pull money out of your TFSA or your RSP, and those are your only options, I would still say pull money out of your TFSA, like save Mm -hmm. that RSP contribution room for sure. Yeah. 
exhaust your savings account, see what credit facilities you can use, then TFSA, then RRSP, in my opinion. I would agree with that, yeah. I was just going to say something to note also is similar to the TFSA. Like, I try to think of these accounts when I think of tax shelters, because that's basically what they are. I think of, like, umbrellas. Mm -hmm. Umbrellas protecting you from the taxes that is the rain, I guess, in this analogy. And you have all of your, your things, so your stocks, your bonds, your... Uh, GICs under the umbrella, just not getting wet. And so, you you similar to the TFSA, you can have many different types and many different RSPs with different institutions. Mm-hmm. And so, again, that's something to drive home because I feel like people forget that you can have more than one. Yeah. I think I have like three right now. And under and I love the umbrella because I also use the umbrella. But under the RSP umbrella, that investment plan, the savings plan, it's going to change the closer you are to retirement. So I think it's a little bit different than the TFSA because the different the TFSA you can be a little bit more flexible in. You can have a portion of your TFSA that's for your new car. You can have a portion of your TFSA that's to, to buy your house if you want to do that. You can have a portion of your TFSA that's for retirement. So you can have different timelines. But your RSP is like just retirement, but it's still going to change. It's going to change, you know, the closer you are to turning it into a RIF. For sure. And by the time you are getting it close to that riff, what would you say, like I would probably caution people to have most of their of their investments in fixed income by the time you're getting close to that riff? Yeah, it depends. It depends when you're going to convert. It depends when, it, it depends on how much other pension income you have. Because if you can wait to 71 and everything like that and just keep the RSP going, like maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you'll end up using that riff income and it's just going to be something that ends up in your estate so i don't know maybe you wouldn't have it in fixed income but okay on standard yeah of course just like with everything else you would have it fixed income or liquid before you withdraw it but you don't have to i'm literally giving tara the dumbest face right now because i'm trying to count how what year it will be when i'm 71 and (laughs) i've landed on 2062 so just in case anyone was wondering (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a long ways off. Um, and if you're, you know, well set up, like, you may not have to touch that riff. You might just be on the minimum annual payment until, then until you gotta your watch, kids inherit it. Then you got to watch the estate taxes. So again, speak to a tax professional. But mm-hmm. I was just going to say, like, you know, 2062, I don't even know if that math is right. I'm an accountant, but I can't do math in my head. It's like far away, but it's also not that far away when you look at how much you're going to have to save for retirement, mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you have like a, a ballpark number you think you're going to need in assets to retire? Yes. Mine's super overinflated. I look at calculating what I will need for a retirement, not as a percentage of the income that we're earning now, but as our expenses. And I want to be able to, when we're retired, I want to be able to travel. I want to be able to gift funds. I want to be able to, you know, support my child and potential grandchildren. I want to enjoy my retirement. So you want to be a rich-ass grandma. Yeah. Or, I mean, if my health fails, I also don't want to have my health care costs transferred to my, my child, right? Or anyone else. So how many millions are we talking here? Like seven. Seven! I had four down, and now I'm feeling like I need more. Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends when you plan on retiring and how much you plan on spending. Oh, I'm going to spend, like... Like, I'm a rich bitch. That's all I have to say on that. Yeah. And did you include inflation? No. I included inflation. 
I don't even know how to do that calculation, but (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I probably do if I thought about it, but yeah, I like thinking about those numbers makes me think about like how much we're going to have to save. Like God help Mm -hmm. us, like God speed the market. Like I know as we're recording, this is what August 21st that it's been on a little bit of a down and Hey, maybe by the time this goes live, we'll we'll be in the thick of a recession, the full recession. Yeah. But uh, maybe who knows, maybe it'll bounce back, but you know, get, again, getting started early in any of these accounts is really going to ensure that you have the ability to continue to earn that income and grow your wealth so that you don't have to save $4 million individually. Mm-hmm. Really, you maybe need to save a quarter of that and utilize time to compound your funds. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we're lucky in the the pension plans that we've been afforded by our employers as well. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't have any of those. Mm-hmm. But I am going to be a rich bitch, and Tara and I are going to have, like, bling when we are old grandmas. Let me just write that down. I may not have bling, but I will likely be vacationing frequently. Oh, yeah. We're just going to be always on vacation. Mindful of the environmental impact. For sure. For sure. By then, I'll have figured out, you know, planes that are green. Solar-powered planes. Yeah, my, my, my kid will solve that problem, right? Exactly. They'll become a, a physicist or a, what are they, they called when they, NASA? I don't know. Astro, well, Astro. that's um, aerospace a, um, engineer. Yeah, that, and mm-hmm. solve the problem for us. Yeah, um, my spouse did that for a little, little bit of time. And mm-hmm. did he make green planes yet? Not yet. Dang. I know. Get on that if you're listening, spouse. <laughs> spouse. All right, moving right along. Oh, that brings us to RESP. So that's actually kind of a good segue. Our children will save the world. Um, so we should be able to find that. So RESP, should you contribute to one? Yes or no? I mean, I don't have kids, so I can't. But as soon as we do have a kid, I think that's going to be my first priority because I am terrified at how much post-secondary will cost by the time my child that I do not have is 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the plan for, like, my personal plan is to save the maximum within the RESP, which is 50000 and maximize the grants. But I'm also going to have an education savings plan outside of that. Even if my kid decides not to go to a school or any school, not just a school where the RESP would be valid, um, I'm, I would still do this. So it's a tax deferral plan. If your kid goes to school, they get the money. It's tax sheltered until they get the money, then they're taxed on the earnings when they withdraw it. So likely they're not going to get taxed on it because they're not earning anything because they're going to school. But if they don't use it, if you have RSP room, you can transfer it over there. But let's perfect world, we don't. Then it just gets taxed on us at that point and we lose our grants. If I had saved it in a non-registered account because my RRSP is maxed, it would be taxed at our marginal rate and we wouldn't have the grant. So I don't see a reason not to. So what happens then if, let's say, you know, you put in $1,000, the government puts in 500 for that grant, let's say, you invest like a boss, mm-hmm. and you earn another 1500 on that 1500 so you have 3000 you need to tax it in your hands. Mm-hmm. Does the government take back the $500 plus the returns, or do they just take the $500 back? No. They just take the $500 back. So you get to keep all of the extra earnings in that account. You do. So it's like utilizing money to make money and then not really having to pay back. Mm -hmm. That's pretty sweet. 
Yeah, and I feel like the mistake on that is being too conservative with the investment plan because you're like, I definitely need this money for my kid's education. You don't necessarily. I mean, they might not go to school. And then I also hear the comment, I'm not going to get an RESP because my kid might not go to school. Well, it it's just like anything else. It's just like the TFSA. It's just like the RRSP. It might be used for that particular thing, but at the end of the day, it's a tax deferral program and you get to keep the returns that are earned on the grant money. So just go for it. That's so key. And um, you're right. I've heard so many parents be like, I'm only putting GICs in my kids. Uh, RESP because they're scared of the market but like when you look at the general trend of the market it is it is up and so because I don't have a kid and I don't know really much about the RESP I'm curious what the amount you can get for the government grant is um so the government grant maxes out at $500 annually and that's if you're in the higher income bracket, that's 20% of your contributions. So you put in 2,500, the government gives you 500. If you put in 3,000, the government gives you 500. If you're lower income, there's a bunch of other options. You get a little bit more. Even if you're super, super, super low income and have nothing to contribute, you can get uh, the learning bond. Yeah, it's the Canada Learning Bond. Thank you. You can get the Canada Learning Bond and they'll just deposit that in your account. That's just free money. Just do it. Yeah, so the way that I've structured it is I just went through and you can max out. The maximum is 7200 in grants. So I just went through and did, I want to get 7200 in grants, uh, 500 each year. How many years will that take me? That does not equal 50000 in contributions. You have a maximum amount of 50000 So I would recommend... <laughs> I'm doing the math. You're doing the math. 7250 <laughs> is that what you said? 7,200, I believe. I don't have my spreadsheet in front of me. 14.4 years. Yes, 14.4 years. Yes, exactly. So that's what I had, but that doesn't equal 50,000 in contributions. So minimum, we would have to contribute 2,500 a year. But we've just talked about compound earnings. Overload the early years. Front load it. Yes. So yeah, see what you can possibly contribute in the early years and maximize that if you can. And then just go forward ensuring that you don't over contribute in the the early years and lose out on your 2,500 in the 14th year. So you probably need a 15th year because there's that 0.4, I would assume. 14.4. Oh, yeah, yeah. So if you had a 15th year, I did just run the math for anyone who's curious, you know, took the the 50K over 15 years, and it looks like it's about $3,333 a year. And so that's 277 a month. If you, Mm -hmm. you know, have the ability to do that, that's a great way to make sure that you're maximizing your earnings and compounding in an account for potentially your kid, but potentially something that's also going to roll into your retirement. Like if you turn this into an account that's worth $200,000, your kid might not use it all. And -hmm. then you might just get to roll some of it into your account and benefit as well. Yeah. And these grants are per child too. So if you have more than one kid, like open up a family plan and go to town and then they can use it for bachelors, masters, doctorates, or it'll go back to you, whatever they don't use. So in Tara in my situation where we have 10 kids, we have $500,000 worth of contribution room. So we're really hoping that Tara as the higher income earner is just raking in the cash and making Mm -hmm. the RESP rain. Yeah. And I mean, if you're a grandparent, you can open up an RESP. 
And one of the things I think I did this for you and I tend to do this for new parents when they are, when they've become new parents is, you know, for a birthday gift, like I'll write a check and say like, it's for their RESP. Like you write it out to Mm -hmm. the parent's name. You don't write it out to the kid's name, but it is kind of nice or I think, because education is super important to me, being able to, you know, contribute to your friend's kid's education in the long term. Because, you know, even if it's like, okay, it's $50. Well, what's $50 over 15 or 18 or 20 years? You're you're actually giving a gift of so much more as opposed to, I think, like, I'm sure I, as parents, I can only imagine it being so annoying to always get toys that make noise. Mm, it is, yes. So I would always say... Can confirm. <laughs> Books and RESP contributions. And yeah, grand ask grandparents. I know maybe it's a boring gift, but I mean, the gift of education was the best gift I could have, have ever gotten from my parents. Mm-hmm. It set me up for the success that I have today. And I just think it's so valuable to help where you can. And mm-hmm. that's my TED Talk. Awesome. I love it. I agree. I would much rather have our kids RESP max than have another toy that makes noise. Mm-hmm. The worst is when you step on the toys and they're sleeping and you're like... We haven't done that yet. I have kicked a couple. The weird thing is our kid will sleep through our alarm has gone off while they've been sleeping. We've kicked toys while they've been sleeping. We've dropped stuff. But if I close my eyes, that's when they wake up. They it's, can hear you close your eyes. <laughs> it's weird. It's a sixth sense. It's It's horrible, actually, but... Still love them to death. But we digress. <laughs> yes. The only time an RESP would not make sense is if your kid has a disability where you know they're not going to school. But there is a plan for that too. So there's the RDSP. So that's the disability savings plan. If your kid, I, I believe, I'm not 100% on this, but if your kid does become disabled, one of the things is you can convert the RESP to an RDSP. The RDSP is really, really good because your kid's probably going to outlive you if you know that they're going to need continuing care costs, everything like that. Um, really great. You'll know if you need one, but just know that the program is out there. The help is available. For sure, yeah. So uh, since we were talking about kids and everything like that, I did go on a maternity leave and I did take maternity leave EI. Do you want to share with our listeners how long you were on your maternity leave for? Oh, well, I got income during my maternity leave for the first year. It was prior to this whole 12 months, 18 months thing. But I ended up staying home until our kid was about 20 months or so. So extended time. I did other things in that time. But uh, yeah, so I stayed home for quite a bit, in my opinion. And now you have the ability to choose between that 12 and 18 months um, and kind of split the benefit over the months that you get. Is that correct? Yeah, you only get the year's salary. So it's 50 five percent of the insurable earnings on average but it's based on your region it's based on a bunch of things there's a calculator we'll link to it but right now you know if you wanted to think about it it'd be about 55 percent of what you've paid in premiums right now the premium max is 53,100. so anyway 55 percent of your insurable earnings if you take the 12 months that's just what you get if you take the 18 months that dollar amount is still what you get but it's prorated over the 18 months And my understanding on EI, again, like super high level rough numbers is it's if you're, if you've maxed out your EI and you're going to get the full 55% or whatever, the maximum amount you can receive is about $2,000 a month. Is that correct? I think so. 
I'd have to double check that. We can definitely link that um, in the show notes. But yeah, you have to have maxed it out. I think that's the most important thing too. So if you're below that 53,100, you're not going to get the, you're just going to get 55% of your income. If you're over that, you're not getting 55% of your net income. You're getting 55% of the EI max. So, and like I said, about ish $2,000. Yeah. And so, you know, if you are maxing it out, that $2,000 is per month for the 12 months, or like Tara said, um, what is that? $24,000 a year, then split that mm-hmm. over 18 months. So yeah, you don't get any more by taking the extended leave. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure how, um, organizations have dealt with the 18 months yet. Um, it's still pretty new. It's so new. I don't know anybody who has gone back to work and taken the 18 months. And so I don't have any like personal anecdotes about what that looked like. Well, I don't think it's been around for 18 months yet. So I don't think anyone could have gone back yet. I have no, like, I have no idea, but yeah. And nobody that I know has been done the return to work. Another question I have for you is around that five weeks, use it or lose it parental leave. When that happens, I'm assuming, um, the other spouse, also gets an EI benefit for those five weeks or what do you know? You split it. So only one can, this is when I went on EI, I'd have to look this up. So we'll like correct this in the show notes if I'm wrong. But back in the day when I did this, back in the day. <laughs> only one of you could claim it at a time. Okay. So if you were both claiming it, you still potentially would only get the $2,000 a month. Let's say you max maxing out Mm -hmm. so it would make more sense for spouse a to go and get the two thousand dollars a month and then for spouse b to take the time after the fact for the five weeks use it or lose it so yeah so um in a couple former places of work there was we got top up like it we got really good maternity paternity leave top up it was straight across the board it didn't matter if you had the baby or if you adopted the baby it doesn't matter i had a co-worker who had five kids um their partner stayed at home and you could have a maximum of three kids using the top up. So every time that person took the full year, um, took the full top up three times, and then the next two times took the 55% of the maximum and stayed home with their stay-at-home partner and just live in the dream while your kid's in well, their first year Well, and also helping to raise the children because that's not an easy job. Oh, so. it's not an easy job. It's 100% not an easy job, but I think that's awesome and I don't know that that many people actually take advantage of that. I feel like in my circle, it's only happened twice where someone has, that I've known somebody who's like, yeah, my partner is a stay-at-home, but I'm going to take advantage of my EI leave that I'm entitled to and take a year and stay at home with my family. That's amazing. Yeah, I haven't seen that happen at all in my space. So if that's you, then take advantage of it and utilize those benefits that, you know, you can get from the government. Yeah. Because you've paid into them. Yeah. And another thing is too, like if you are thinking about um, who should stay at home and splitting it on income, which made sense for my family and made sense for most families that I know, um, take into account who's getting the top up as well. Because another instance of a coworker of mine, they got the top up, their partner didn't, their partner was the lower income worker, but it just made sense for them to split that 12 months 
I can't remember if it was six months, six months or what have you, but then they were able to get that top up as well, which was amazing. For sure. So definitely look into your maternity and parental leave plans, ask HR or, you know, search on your intranet and within your company and find out what those policies are so that you can appropriately plan financially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, if you're getting top up, like, you're basically maintaining the same level of income while you're on leave. It's it's incredible. That's all I've got. Our pink tax rebate, I guess, would be get a TFSA. Yes, I love that. I love that for everybody. <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening. See you next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to share your money story using the hashtag FemFinances.